Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. I'm Scott Richards, here with Sean Richards, and we are here to answer your questions on the Bible. If you've got biblical questions on your heart or on your mind, hey, feel free to join on in. Any question you have about the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, on the table here, maybe you'd like to see how to apply the passages we find in the Word of God to the current uh, circumstances you're going through. Hey, share with us what's going on in your life. We'd be happy to share with you those time-tested truths we find in the Bible and the amazing difference they can make within your life. Answers to tough questions. Maybe you've got a tough question. Maybe you've been asked a tough question. Bring them on. Uh, What a wonderful thing it is to know that even though there are tough questions out there, the Bible has even more powerful answers. We'd love to be able to connect you up with uh, the ability to be able to share your faith in this increasingly secular world. Uh, Get online and let us know uh, what kind of questions about the Bible you would like to have asked or have been asked and maybe felt a day late and a dollar short as far as being able to give an answer that really satisfies the hearts and minds of those you get a chance to share with. Uh, We'd love to hear those kind of questions, questions about the events of the day, current events, uh, current controversies, even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. Uh, We are all over those things each and every day. But where we go on the broadcast is entirely up to you. It's your questions that lead us and guide us in this journey uh, in God's Word. Well, uh, having said all of that, Sean, if people want to get those questions to us, how can they do that? Well, if you're joining us online, you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. The Calvary is spelt C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. If you click on the Watch Live tab on the purple bar at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to our not only smiling faces, but also to a countdown to when the next broadcast will be, say, the time zone evades you. We'll also be live streaming previous broadcasts and our weekly messages at Calvary Christian Fellowship. So feel free to join and engage with us, and we'll have the comments section available when we are live to receive your questions through that venue. If you would like to join us on social media, YouTube is A Reason for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like or subscribe to us there, you'll be notified when we are going live and also have the chance to engage with us in the live stream or the comment section afterwards. Also note, if you're listening to us on Reach Radio, uh, perhaps aren't uh, able to engage with us face-to-face live, but still want to get your questions to us, our email address is questions, F-O-R-hope, at gmail.com. That will be available both on and off hours, and perhaps if a question was sent in towards the end of the broadcast, we didn't get time for it, or we want to continue on it, feel free to send it to us there. We can keep it nice and organized and ready for future use. Uh, With the future then in mind and hoping for your participation, we also want to make sure God is participating in the broadcast as well, speaking more than we do, as we say. So why don't we start off with a word of prayer and see where this goes? Let's do that. Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to share your word now, literally all around the world. We pray that you would draw those who need to hear your word, who need a word of encouragement uh, to this broadcast. We pray, Father, that your word would be uh, grace and truth based as we explore the questions that come our way. And Lord, we want to share your truth, your whole truth, and nothing but your truth as you guide 
and make this uh, particular broadcast something you can use for eternal value. Lord, we certainly don't have the power to do that, and so we come to you and ask you to honor your word. May it uh, go forth as you promised it would, uh, not returning to you void, but always accomplishing what you sent it out to do. Father, we ask as well that uh, the power of your spirit would convict us and allow us to be able to receive those uh, wonderful blessings of hearing your word and and, uh, receiving it just in uh, the the proper way, the, the right way that we need to receive it in our lives. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for being Lord over this program. We commit it to you, and we ask that you would be glorified, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. All right, anything to note as far as the events of the weekend before we get into the questions? Um, We are uh, watching uh, events in Israel. It does appear that uh, there is a real dust-up going on, as some have even called it another intifada or uprising because of the wave of terrorist attacks that have happened there. We're going to keep an eye on that uh, for you. Uh, Obviously, events are still percolating in the Ukraine, wars, rumors of wars and such. Uh, It does seem that uh, there are some other interesting events, including uh, Elon Musk uh, announcing that he has bought nearly 10% of Twitter stock, uh, which makes him the single largest uh, stockholder in Twitter. Uh, In uh, contrast, the actual CEO of Twitter only owns 2% of Twitter stock. And uh, Elon Musk has made some comments about Twitter uh, not uh, being a fair and uh, open place for free speech. Uh, And so it'll be very interesting to see what happens there. Uh, One of the more interesting things we wanted to point out to you about that particular event is that, as you know, uh, the uh, Babylon Bee and the Not the Bee website and Adam Ford were all locked out of Twitter for uh, the crime of uh, saying that the... uh, A joke. uh, No, actually, it was just pointing out the fact that uh, our Secretary of Health and Human Services, although he has long hair and uh, wears makeup and claims to be a woman, is, in fact, a man. Uh, That apparently was enough to get them locked out of Twitter. They said, we will unlock you if you uh, recant of that. They said, we can't recant of the truth. So uh, Elon Musk, for his part, very interestingly did an interview uh, with the Babylon Bee uh, about uh, his uh, view of uh, Christian humor and uh, and his uh, view of the Internet. Uh, it will be interesting to see if that influence that Elon Musk now has over Twitter is going to, uh, well, result in some long overdue uh, corrections uh, regarding censorship on that particular platform. So very interesting one to watch indeed. Yeah, might uh, get us back on that platform, yeah. but not yet. Uh, starting this off, Craig wants to know, uh, God comes to us in spirit. How does an angel come to us? Are they spirit? I'm thinking that angels are spirits. You're thinking right, Craig, but don't take our word for it. Uh, first of all, let's clarify your first assumption as correct. In John chapter 4, Jesus clarifies to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. Therefore, those who worship him He desires them, rather, to worship him in spirit and in truth. So noting substantively God is not physical, he's spiritual, that is the first thing to clarify. But what's also interesting is that when angels are called spirits, it's usually assumed. The good news is the author of Hebrews cleared that up for us. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 13, uh, this is just to set the context that we're talking about angels here. 
But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies uh, your footstool? That's quoting Psalm 110. Then it goes on to say in verse 14, are they, not they as in the one they're being contrasted with, the one who would inherit all nations in Psalm 110, but to which of the angels has he said this? That's the topic. All ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. So, Craig, just to make a uh, short answer slightly longer, that is where we would go to clarify the substance and nature of angels, whether they're physical or spiritual. However, I also want to clarify one thing that's uh, come up a few times in the broadcast in recent weeks. When we say angels, we usually think of what's rightly understood as heavenly creatures. Uh, Heavenly creatures are creations meant to exist in heaven. Uh, We usually are referred to them as seraphim, cherubim, exalted ones, burning ones, you get the like. But an angel is actually not a type of creature. It's a job description. There are human angels. For example, the last book of the Bible Mal- or the Old Testament, rather, Malachi, that name literally means my messenger, angel, right. Malak in yeah. Hebrew. Uh, what's also important to note as well is Jesus has appeared at times in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. We note the difference between the context. If he's talked to like God, treated like God, does the things only God could do, it's probably God. Yeah. But uh, that's uh, one thing that we'd also want to clarify. If you say angel, you're not giving a description of what they are, it's what they do. That all being said, though, uh, as far as the heavenly creatures that we commonly refer to as angels, Hebrews 1.14, the context starts in verse 13, would set that straight. They are indeed spiritual entities, not physical. Yeah, um, I can't uh, add anything to that. Interesting uh, question from our YouTube uh, site. Thank you for all of our YouTube users there, and we do go back there on a regular basis to see your questions come out. It comes from Yari. Uh, Yari wanted to know uh, whether the crossing of the Jordan River, uh, that is the people of Israel leaving the wilderness and crossing the Jordan, was a symbol of the new life that we have in Christ. His pastor said God told him to get baptized with a rock in his hand, and he did, and as a result, we have a new campus on the south side. Well, who knows? Uh, Some uh, point to crossing the Jordan as a symbol of water baptism and the new birth, and we come to Christ on the other side. We repent. You know, uh, Yari, I think it's a good question because when we take a look at Old Testament types that refer to New Testament realities, uh, one of the things that I think we really need to be careful to do is to make sure that we're not just sort of saying, well, this certainly seems like a New Testament experience here. What I mean by that is the New Testament is really, really good about pointing out those things in the Old Testament that are uh, types and symbols. A great example of this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it gets to the gist of your question here. It says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, here we see this idea of Moses leading the people from uh, captivity in Egypt, crossing through the Red Sea on dry land, being likened to a baptism. Well, all the word baptism means 
is a ceremonial washing that took place. And I imagine if you were walking through that place, you'd probably get quite a bit of sea spray on you as you went uh, through uh, the, uh, the Red Sea. Nowhere do we see in Scripture that crossing over the Jordan uh, is a reference to, say, leaving the old life behind and coming into the new life. It certainly seems like they were leaving their life in the wilderness. There was the miraculous parting of the Jordan River. Uh, some would say that that is the picture of the new birth that goes on, and then they enter into the promised land. Um, others get that confused. They, you know, you hear the uh, the spirituals that talk about uh, crossing the Jordan, and uh, that that is crossing from this life into the afterlife. Yeah, swing uh, low, sweet chariot. Yeah, those kinds of songs yeah. have been based on that. But the, the problem with it all is, is there's no New Testament verification that any of those things were actually pointing to that. You know, you could look at it and say, well, it does seem to be that way. Uh, just for my purposes as a pastor, and Sean, I'm sure when you're teaching as well, when we make an inference like that, like saying, well, look, just as the people of Israel passed through the Red Sea miraculously, so we see them passing through uh, the Jordan miraculously, entering into this brand new land. Uh, it does seem to be a picture of leaving the old life and, you know, entering into the new life. But we'll say it seems, you know, it's not definite. Uh, the only time that we're really definite about something like that is when we see, for instance, a definition of what was going on, uh, a direct application of an Old Testament event with New Testament spiritual significance like we do here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And it involved a rock, but not the ones at Jordan. Right. Uh, so, you know, someone saying that we got a new campus because they held a rock um, while they were being baptized, well, when we get to heaven, we'll be able to figure out if there was a cause and effect there. I can't judge someone else's uh, vision I don't see anything in Scripture that would suggest that that is the kind of symbol that is going on there. Sometimes people uh, I've known, uh, for instance, will take rocks and uh, throw them into the sea, uh, symbolizing that uh, they've turned from sin or uh, they are just completely receiving God's forgiveness as he has cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Uh, you know, if that's helpful to somebody to visualize and hold on to that, that's fine. But we don't see anywhere in Scripture where there's a ritual given that says, boy, if you really want to be sure about God's forgiveness, take a rock, uh, you know, write your sins on a piece of paper, put a rubber band on it, and throw it in the ocean. Uh, we don't really see that. In fact, the word rubber band does not exist in the Greek. <laughs> and uh, we don't want to stumble the fish by giving them material to gossip. So, yeah. So the, the, the fact of That's the matter is, if someone wants to do that, and uh, they're doing it in sincerity before the Lord, the Lord's their judge. But uh, the only place I'd get off that particular train is if someone recommends uh, others do this or say this is something that all believers ought to do, I really think we need to take our cues from the Scripture, not uh, from someone's personal experience. And uh, if we can keep that standard, uh, I think it's going to keep us out of a peck of trouble. All right. Um, while I'm trying to translate this next question, let's go to one in English. Bob wants to know, could you explain the month of Ramadan in terms of sorry, I almost laughed, of the fasting requirements in terms of its history, its dealings with the Quran, etc. Uh, he read somewhere that if a participant didn't fast properly for the month, they wouldn't receive forgiveness. Thank you. Yeah, Bob, it's a fun one because when it's 
I guess included as one of the five pillars of Islam, fasting during Ramadan, the Hajj, uh, giving to not necessarily poor causes, but whatever your imam does, usually terrorist causes, unfortunately, and the Shahada, the prayer of faith in Arabic, that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger, with the intent to convert. All this being said, uh, the fast, quote-unquote, of Ramadan isn't actually a fast at all. In fact, there are regular reports of people gaining more weight during the month of Ramadan than any other time, and let me explain why. Uh, The month of Ramadan is set out in varying times because it's based on the lunar calendar, and there's a few hadith sources, hadith meaning uh, recitations, traditions attributed to the sayings of Muhammad, that's what hadith means, uh, where he forgot when it was as well. So it's anyone's guess, but the uh, basic uh, Muslim, Muslim tradition today is that it's determined when not only the final call to prayer has been started, uh, but also when they can hold a white and a black string, and based on the time of day and the light that is present, they can't distinguish between the two. That's generally the metric that they use. All that being said, uh, the fast of, of Ramadan is actually a feast because during those times you're required to quote-unquote fast from sunrise to sunset throughout this month. The problem with that in not only calling it a fast but also noting what you do when the sun goes down is gorge yourself silly on the sort of things that would fill you up and occupy you for the day. It's talking yogurts, talking meats, and various other things that aren't necessarily healthy to overindulge upon, but overindulge they do. Uh, David Wood's uh, friend Nabil Qureshi, a uh, recently glorified brother in the Lord now, uh, said that the one time that Nabil ever showed up on time for anything was him breaking his fast for Ramadan. It's a very heavily motivated thing because you'd be starving yourself throughout the entire day. Right. And for those who have ever tried uh, any sort of fasting regimen, you know that it's very bad to go from not eating anything for long periods of time to eating copious amounts of unhealthy things at very regular intervals. So... With all this being said, uh, it's ironic that this festival, which, by the way, was a Nabataean pagan ritual that was borrowed from the Persians as well, in its incorporation with Islam is central to their worship. But also note this as well, Bob, just to clarify, they aren't fasting, or not fasting, rather, uh, to achieve forgiveness. What they're trying to achieve is something called baraka. Now, for those of you who speak English, it's essentially a term used to refer to the common common new agey idea of your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds. It's uh, started in Persia, but Islam also borrowed that too. You have an angel on one shoulder and a jinn or a demon on the left that are recording your good deeds and your bad deeds, and when you consciously do a good deed to offset your bad deeds, that's what they call baraka. And during the month of Ramadan, any good deeds or efforts in the cause of Allah, that is including warfare, will count extra. So they're following the Home Alone 2 theology. Yeah, Uh, Christmas good deeds count for extra tonight. That's not in the Bible. That's Islam. But with that being said, uh, no, Bob, it's not a fast. It's a feast. They're just not uh, allowed to eat during the day, and it is a miserable experience for anyone who has the unfortunate, uh, I guess, association or decision to become a part of Islam. If uh, there weren't uh, the law of apostasy, I think that uh, a lot of people would leave just during that month alone. Also note as well, um, during the prayers, the fastings, and so forth, it's uh, really 
a lot like everything else in Islam, very backwards in its system and what it's trying to accomplish. Now, taking this into something more positive, when a Christian fasts, and obviously it's a very much a show, uh, the uh, fastings and dedications of Ramadan is made to be this public and pious demonstration of your sincerity right. in the Muslim community, but despite their claims that they want to respect Isa bin Miriam, their name for Jesus, which, by the way, is not the Arabic name for Jesus, or anything that they claim of him in the Quran, what was Jesus' actual teachings when it comes to how, when, or if we should fast? Yeah, uh, Jesus is pretty straightforward about it. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 16, he said, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, they may appear to men to be fasting. As surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Uh, you know, when we get involved with fasting, our default position should be to have this be just between us and the Lord, uh, based upon this passage here in Matthew chapter 6. Now, in Acts 13, we are told that the elders and leaders in the church at Antioch were ministering to the Lord and seeking him with fasting when the Holy Spirit spoke and said, set aside Barnabas and, and Paul for the work that I have for him. I think there's an exception to that rule when you are gathering together with other people for a specific purpose of seeking the Lord, uh, putting aside you know, the uh, usual meal or something like that to be able to concentrate on prayer. So it's kind of like the standards we have regarding prayer. Uh, you know, it does seem, based on Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' priority in prayer is not to pray on the street corners so that you can be seen by men. As surely he says, you have your reward. Verse 6, he says, But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So God's priority in prayer is one-on-one, -on -one, just between you and him, so that nobody else knows about it. Uh, that way, you know, we are free from ulterior motives as much as possible. Does that mean the Bible precludes the idea of public prayer? Well, no, we do see the apostles joining together and praying together in public. But we also notice something else. We see that uh, the priority in Scripture seems to be that our default position is to spend a lot of time uh, alone, one-on-one, -on -one, with the Lord in prayer. Uh, I think uh, we should pray longest when we are in private. Uh, we should pray, pray shortest, shorter, when we are in public. Uh, unfortunately, I've been in prayer gatherings where someone will just start going and going and going and going in prayer. And those who want to pray for other things or pray along with them uh, pretty soon find themselves drifting because the individual uses up all the time. So I think uh, the ABCs of sharing also apply to prayer. Be audible, brief, and Christ-centered. I think that will make you a blessing and a benefit to a public prayer gathering. But pray shortest while people are waiting to eat. That is my best uh, piece of advice for you. So when it comes to fasting, I think it works the same way. It, the Bible doesn't absolutely exclude the idea of getting together with a limited amount of people and saying, hey, we're going to fast and seek the Lord. But when we make a big deal about it, and we say, oh, I'm doing this fast right now. I, I remember it was a few years ago, there was a fad that swept through the church. I'm doing a Jesus fast. That is fasting for 40 days. 
And I remember this one fellow I went to a Bible study with. Oh, he's sitting there going, oh, man, I'm on this Jesus fast. And, and it was so rough because I forgot to, I started my Jesus fast uh, less than a month before Thanksgiving. And so everybody at Thanksgiving was having turkey and mashed potatoes and cranberry sauce and rolls. And, and I was just sitting there with my juice cup. And, oh, it was so rough. And, and I was like, wow, paid in full, man. You know, here you fasted for 40 days and you bragged about it to me and moaned about how hard it was for you at Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, I think you kind of got paid in full. You'll go to heaven someday and the Lord will look at you and he'll say, well, I did this Jesus fast. Wasn't that great? Well, yeah, Scott Richards is really impressed. I don't think that's going to really be that much of a great thing for you when you get to heaven. Yeah, but when it comes down to the view of Islam, obviously this is very much externally based religion. You see in Sharia compliant and dominated countries that uh, Christians who don't have to observe the fast or feast rather of Ramadan are uh, criminalized and even sentenced to jail sentences uh, for uh, portraying or publicizing the use of food or holding their stores open during times where Muslims are going to be quote-unquote fasting. It's not a fast at all. It is something that is delayed on a half-day-by-day basis. And uh, also note as well how much suffering they're enduring when they can't even drink water in certain areas like Saudi Arabia, for example. Yeah. Most of the Muslims who celebrate this fast sleep through the day, and they're given provisions by their employers to do so. But what's important to notice this what's hilarious about ramadan it's not holy at all it's entirely pagan but it was adopted into this religion as a fast when you feast more than any other time in the year but of course don't call it that or we'll cut your head off that's uh, essentially islam in a nutshell is borrow from paganism claim that it's the what something is is the opposite of what it is in reality and punish people who point that out Fortunately for us, when it comes to our Lord's teachings and what we can talk about with our Muslim friends is to clarify, look, we have far more to offer than just this show of religiosity. And we're speaking to our brothers here. I'm not suggesting you talk to him like this, but just make the point. When we're actually fasting, we're not doing it in order to offset bad deeds or to gain some appeal to these angels looking over literally our shoulders, but to acknowledge that we want to set aside this food in order to pursue better time with God. If you want to fast, you can fast. If you don't, then you aren't in trouble for it. That's a far more, I guess, not just freeing, but simple approach towards God than what Islam would offer. Yeah. Uh, hey, interesting question on our uh, CalvaryChristianFellowship.com uh, website. You can go there at ccftucson.online.church and follow us along there and get your questions to us. Uh, Nina had a question about the days of Noah. What are the days of Noah all about? There's an awful lot of confusing teaching that goes about uh, regarding the days of Noah. You know, once again, Nina, I think the best way to stay on track uh, as far as the days of Noah are concerned is to simply go to the scripture where Jesus speaks about it. Because he not only talks about the days of Noah, he defines what aspects of the days of Noah are relevant to the time surrounding his return. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36, Jesus said, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. It did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, 
one will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So when we take a look at this passage in Matthew chapter 24, and uh, we see how Jesus defines the days of Noah, there are some really significant uh, things that we can glean from all this without going too far overboard like some people do when they talk about these sort of things. First of all, uh, the days of Noah were a, a time when a global judgment was going to come upon the earth. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's going to be a time that unleashes a final seven-year period of time known as the Tribulation. But notice uh, Jesus goes on and says, For as the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. We've shared this before on the broadcast, but it's worth repeating. In the days of Noah, we see a pattern established when God pours out his wrath upon this world in a global, universal kind of a way. Uh, First of all, there's a prophetic warning. In other words, the days of Noah... Why were the days of Noah like this? Because Genesis chapter 6 says that uh, God was going to uh, not always strive with man, but his days will be 120 years. That means from the time that Noah was clued in, that judgment was coming, there's 120 years to get ready. Uh, We are told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness during this time. In other words, there was a prophetic warning that was given prior to the flood. Also during this 120 years, a provision was made for anyone who would put their faith and trust in the true and living God. In the case of Noah's day, eight people out of the whole human population passed that bar, right? So uh, once a provision was made for God's people, Noah, the animals, and so forth, his family, uh, got into the ark, God closed the door of the ark, and only then did judgment fall. Noah didn't have to swim for the ark. He didn't have to tread water. So we see this pattern. Prophetic warning, provision for God's people, then judgment is meted out on a global scale. So Jesus is saying it's going to happen just the same way. The other thing that's emphasized in Matthew 24, Nina, is the suddenness involved with it. People are going to be going about their lives business as usual, right? You know, marrying, giving in marriage, uh, buying and selling. Uh, What problem we have placing that in the tribulation period? Well, during the tribulation, we're going to see a number of plagues that would put other priorities on people's minds than marriage and uh, feasting halls and so forth. Uh, perhaps even farming, since there won't be any vegetation left. Or Real estate water deals or, or something like that. Anything yeah. like that. Humanity will be uh, so rare. Uh, the Old Testament prophets say that uh, two women are going to cling on to one man and say, we don't have anyone left. Yeah. So note this point. When we're talking about this, though, I think what she's also getting into is how how much quote unquote worse can it get? Unfortunately, the example she gave is something that's already happened, but uh, might be keeping in mind Second Timothy chapter two and knowing in the last days men will be uh, wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Yeah, Second Timothy three. Yeah. Uh, it's going to get worse, but yeah. we don't have to go with it. And that's also noted in Matthew twenty four because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But how yeah. do we avoid that? Yeah, well, by daily asking the Lord to fill us with His Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If we, by faith, daily renew the power of the Spirit, we can go against the tide of this age. Yeah, patience and faithfulness, the willingness to be good even when the rest of the world is only getting worse. Yeah, so, so I guess what I would say is 
Uh, Nina, in order to make sure you don't get carried away with the latest sensationalistic stuff you see on the Internet, just go to the text. Um, Jesus defines what the days of Noah would be like. Are we in very similar sets of circumstances? You better believe it. Uh, There's a prophetic warning going on, and that prophetic warning is going to come to an end when God's provision for his people at the rapture, snatching us out before the global storm that's going to come upon the earth, actually breaks forth. All right. Um, question from Horatio wants to know, uh, are demons distinct from fallen angels? And the distinction is made based on a teaching he listens to uh, regarding that demons need a body and angels and fallen angels don't need a body. They can move freely under God's will, but demons need a body. Um to the individual who taught you that, I'd want to know the context in which the teaching was addressed because I think I know what they were talking about and you may have misunderstood. Uh, two things to keep in mind. The first is in regards to the passage of demons or unclean spirits. Yeah. Uh, needing a body is in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew 12. That right. a spirit goes out from a man seeking rest, not finding, and he says, I'll go back to the place in which I was. And we also note that the uh, demon-possessed men outside of the Gadarenes preferred being in a body, but it's a leap to say they quote-unquote Even the one. pig's body. Yeah, Yeah. and it's noting the point. It's a leap to say that they need a body as opposed to they have the capacity to inhabit a body. That's the first thing I'd clarify. The second is uh, what you're turning to there when it's referring to fallen angels. Remember, we clarified angel is a description messenger. But uh, we'll clarify the definition of demon here in another minute. Where do we get the term fallen in reference to them? Well, uh, it would be a reference to uh, Revelation 12, wouldn't it? Right, and that was in the sign that appeared in heaven. So this is a symbolic note in verse 1 where it shows a great dragon that's clarified in the chapter to be the devil and Satan, the serpent of old, going referenced in Genesis chapter 3. And what's interesting as well is it notes that he... Uh, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. That's in reference to the angels of heaven. And it's also clarified within the same chapter, the dragon and his angels fought with Michael and his angels, noting the distinction of heavenly creatures there. But when we're talking about uh, a distinction between demons and fallen angels, let's just first start with the dictionary. A fallen angel is a messenger, but fallen in an adversarial relationship between them and God. Right. A demon literally means an adversary, an adversarial spirit. Uh, there's a Greek term, uh, by the way, uh, demons with an A, D-A-E-M-O-N-S. It's different letters, of course. But uh, that's actually a reference to angels in a good sense. It was used by Aristotle to refer to your uh, better nature and consciousness. A man struggles with his inner demons and demons, but one is the A demon, a good spirit. But here's the point that's being made uh, when we're talking about this. Obviously, uh, this isn't a non-negotiable. I'd be willing to have lengthy conversations if he clarifies and doubles down on this. But when it comes to the area of concern, I'm not sure what difference it would make apart from a bizarre, I guess, hierarchy among spiritual entities. Uh, When it comes to the realm of angels and demons, this is what we do know. If anything comes in opposition to you, an adversary or demon, that's what that means, make sure that Jesus is your one and only answer to it. You don't say, oh, this isn't a demon, this is a fallen angel, therefore I should respond to it differently. No, it's the same response. So its relevance to you is 
irrelevant. It's the same solution. If, on the other hand, I was going to say, no, these things are told to us in Scripture, and I think the insights are relevant, do you dismiss the Word of God? And I'd say, no, but let's just take a step back and ask, is this what was being discussed? And in Luke chapter 11, this is essentially sandwiched between two other bizarre doctrines, uh, one of which was Jesus being called uh, a demon uh, exorcist because he had demons on his side, and Jesus pointed out how nonsensical that was. Then another woman right after that parable that is used to describe demons needing a body was the worship of Mary, and Jesus says in verse 28, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, when a woman tried to draw attention to Jesus' mother. So sandwiched between two bizarre doctrines, that Jesus' miracles are attributed to demons, and Jesus' miraculous nature is attributed to his mother, neither were relevant to how they are often applied. So yeah. I think you ought to be careful if two out of the three are being misconstrued. But if, on the other hand, we ask what was the context of both the Matthew 12 and Luke 11 passages, it was clarifying that nonsensical approach towards spirituality, that if I reform myself without the intervention of God, then I'll just end up in a worse state than when I started. I would disagree, and it'd be a longer discussion, that that's referring to possession per se. But when we're talking about the other issues at work here, what is a fallen angel? It's an adversary to you with the purpose of being a messenger. A doctrine of demon, uh, demons, as it's noted in Paul's letters to Timothy, which with sign, power signs and lying wonders, Second Thessalonians 2 says. Notice lying is the operative term there. If the message is a lie, then it's noting not true. How do you answer a lie? With the truth. If you're dealing with a fallen angel, you don't call reinforcements from righteous angels. You go straight to their creator. When it comes to demons, unclean spirits, if you will, adversaries, what do you do? You solve it with the spirit that's in you. Uh, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. I think that's all we need to know about the distinctions between the hierarchies and classes of demons people have made up over the years. Yeah. Um, God bless the individual who taught you that, but I respectfully disagree that there is a distinction. Um, if they perhaps misunderstood, then I'd address it with them, just noting that for the second time so it's clear. But uh, no, I'd, I'd say that a adversary in a spiritual form and a fallen angel, those are the same thing. That would be my opinion. Yeah, and, you know, we have the word that's translated demon. Uh, sometimes it's translated uh, unclean spirits. Same passages referring to the same uh, incidences. And, uh, you know, as we talked about at the uh, top of the broadcast, uh, you know, angels are ministering spirits. They are spiritual beings. Can they manifest themselves physically? We do see them manifesting themselves physically in terms of the angels that are sent out to do God's will, uh, interacting with people, touching people, things like this. Uh, and it would be really surprising if uh, fallen angels didn't have that same kind of capability. We do see that uh, there are certain fallen angels, especially in the book of Revelation, that do seem to have uh, greater power uh, than other fallen angels. There are hierarchies involved uh, with uh, these kind of beings that they probably took with them from the hierarchies that God created in heaven, but uh, again, incorporated that same kind of breakdown and organization uh, to do their nefarious deeds here on earth. You know, I, I don't think you can build a doctrine on that. Uh, and even if you do, your doctrine of angelology, I think, fits into one of those uh, great categories that we talk about a lot in this program. Uh, you know, uh, we can agree to disagree on these things. Uh, they're not salvation issues. 
Um, you can have your take on that. I can have mine. Uh, but I wouldn't uh, want to portray uh, something like uh, seems to be implicit in what you're talking about here as, uh, as just, boy, this is absolutely clear from Scripture and there's no other way to look at it. So. Yeah. Um, here's a question from Dre who wants insight into the passage that notes love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, it's quoted in 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, but the quotations from Proverbs 10 and verse 12, I can go into the context of both here if you'd like, Dre, but let me start in the Old Testament because it's fun. Um, starting in Proverbs, uh, obviously this is a poetic section of Scripture. If we're going to take doctrine, we need to make sure we understand how it's applied. So when we go back to First Peter, that will be the answer to that issue. But uh, Proverbs chapter 10, and again, let me make sure I have the right verse here. They, uh, God bless these study Bibles. They give the references to us. Proverbs 10 and verse 12, hatred stirs up strife but love covers all sins. Now, obviously, this type of poem, this proverb, is a note of contrast. You have the hatred stirring up strife and love covering all sins. Obviously, the contrast is to show that these are polar opposites. Hate is not equal to love. If you're going to pursue something, be the kind of person who covers all sins rather than stirs up strife. Now, why would covering sins be relevant to the Hebrew audience that Solomon was speaking to? Well, that's what they did every day with the uh, animal sacrifices. Psalm 32 says, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Covered. And that's the language they would use. So when we're talking about forgiveness, uh, in a sense, that would be inappropriate to a point. But when we're talking about the sort of attitude we ought to model, it's making this proverb a statement. Hatred is going to make you the kind of person, go back to Proverbs 6, that God hates, who seeks to sow discord among brethren, who stirs up strife, if you will, who's seeking that kind of adversarial, demon-based conflict in nature. If on the other hand you pursue love, who do you think you're going to model? You're going to model the nature of God. And that's how Peter applies it in 1 Peter chapter 4. And again, verse 8, let me start in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love, passionate love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Then goes on to note how this is done practically, not only in teaching, but in godly conduct. So when we're applied this passage in the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Peter, how does he treat it? He doesn't quote the whole proverb. He quotes the one relevant to us modeling the character of God. That's why I think it would be appropriate for the proverb to be handled in such a way, not only like we said with In regards to Joshua, the quotations in the New Testament set the tone, but also noting the structure of the poetry itself is making a point of contrast. It's comparing the hatred lifestyle will make you hateful, the love lifestyle will make you loving. The hatred lifestyle uh, reflects a characteristic that God hates. Love is a characteristic that God has. Which one do you want to be more like? Now, if we're going to say, well, I just, I love the person, so does that mean that it covered any sin that I committed along the way, not in the slightest. If you lovingly murder somebody, you're still guilty of murder that's not covered in an Old or New Testament sense. If you say, well, my intentions were good, I did it out of love. No, you disemboweled that person and ate them. That's not loving, and I don't care what you call it, you need to be locked in a room. That's the point that's oftentimes made to misconstrue this. If we check the context, this is what's called hermeneutics, Bible interpretation. 
Um, just note the context was poetry, the style was contrast, the use of language was in the Old Covenant, so make sure that when you use words like covering and strife, you didn't even have to leave the book to note that's one of the six things that God hates in Proverbs 6, but noting the point as well, um, when we see people quote passages, don't just say, "Ah, that settles it, it's where did you get that? When was that said? Why was it said? How is it applied by the people who wrote it? And is that the same way you are? Let us know if that helps you out, Dre, and uh, hopefully that was clear. Probably longer than you thought you'd get an answer to that, but that's what we do here. Yeah. Um, here's a, uh, our contradiction for the day. This is, uh, before I read it, do you have anything more to add? Um, well, uh, no, I think so. I think that, that covered it. Okay, so. contradiction of the day. Uh, this is, again, from an atheist who thinks that the creation of heaven is a contradiction in the Bible. In Matthew 25 and verse 34, apparently it was created when earth was created. Uh, Let's just pause right there. Is that sound Christian doctrine? No. Okay. So we're already off to a bad start. Yeah. Um, And then the contradiction between this misrepresentation of Christianity is even worse. In John 14 and verse 2, apparently heaven was created after Jesus ascended. So which is it? Was heaven created when the earth was created, or was it created after Jesus ascended? Now, we don't even have to go to the verses to say neither. Not one of the passages you quoted is putting down not only what is said, but what that means for corn's sake what does heaven even mean well heaven has three kind of definitions in the scripture uh the word uh, especially in the hebrew scriptures can refer to uh the heavens that is the atmosphere around the earth where we see the birds fly and the clouds do their thing it's used in genesis chapter one for example yeah. causing the birds of the air to fly in the midst of heaven yeah and then word. genesis and then psalm 19 says that the heavens are declaring the glory of god it speaks of uh there he made a, uh, a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom emerging from his chamber so the place of the sun the moon the planets this is also a re- reference to heaven heaven is also referred to as the spiritual abode of god so um god has always been and has always had that spiritual abode it's not a physical abode so uh, when Jesus speaks of uh, going to prepare a place for you, he's speaking of an aspect of heaven. And we see that heaven has a lot of different aspects. In the book of Revelation, for instance, we see that uh, the new heavens and the new earth, where there's not only going to be a new heavens and a new earth, but there's going to be the feature of the new Jerusalem, where we're going to be able to enjoy the presence of God. So Which that hasn't. is yet, as far as we understand, to be created. But it's a feature of something that is already created, which are the heavens. All right. So then in dealing with contradictions, let's keep up the habit. How do you respond to this? First, I guess in this case, know what heaven means, but also know what a contradiction means. A contradiction is a violation of the second law of formal logic that two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and cancel each other out. A does not equal non-A. In this passage, they say that the creation of heaven is either before the earth or after Jesus ascended. Neither are accurate, but before we say that, let's do the second step in whenever we're given a contradiction. Call their bluff. Go to the passage. Does it even say heaven? Does it even mean heaven? And with all that being said, compare the passages and say, is this really canceling itself out? This is Matthew 25 and verse 34. In the context of the end times... 
Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, note we don't even have to read the next, the rest of the context. Is the word heaven ever used once in that passage? No. No, the word kingdom is, and it being prepared, but what is a kingdom? It's where the king reigns. Yeah. And if you follow the note of the story that began in verse 31 and continues on to verse 46, reading a passage in the dead center of that and saying, well, this is referring to the creation of heaven, not only fails to understand basic Christian doctrine, but basic English. Now let's go to John 14 and verse 2. Let me start in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are, I thought there will be, anyway, many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So, obviously, the handling of this passage is to suggest that heaven won't exist until he goes and prepares a place for us. No. Um, is that ever what Christians mean by heaven? Well, it's not even stated in the text. Yeah, heaven isn't used in either of those passages, or it being created. It's assumed to mean that by someone, I guess, with the inability to read or with an agenda, usually both. But let's make sure that when you're given these contradictions, and I'm being smarmy because, again, we're among our yeah. brothers here, Read the passage, know what a contradiction is, call out this nonsense because it's quite frankly exhausting. Hey, here's another interesting question we got. It comes from Dre. Uh, Dre says, why does it seem that people who tithe are blessed, but people who don't tithe are struggling financially? This seems uh, true in a church I went to where everyone who tithed was blessed, but everyone who didn't was struggling financially. Is God blessing these people in spite of wrong doctrine? It was a prosperity church that I was at for a while. Well, um, Dre, I guess what I would say is, is this. There are certain principles that we run into in the Word of God that God honors. Um, you know, I, I think of a, a wonderful scripture we find in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 25, where it says, The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Now, notice there's nothing in that passage that says that an individual who has a lot of faith and lives beyond their means and gives to all these causes is going to be made rich. No, it talks about the generosity of their soul. You know, the Bible isn't so concerned about a particular percentage that we are giving to God as much as we find it being concerned about the heart and the attitude behind the giving. That's where we would uh, make a distinction with the faith movement people. You know, the faith movement people would say that if you do uh, say a 10% tithe, then God is obligated to bless you, you know, a hundredfold. Well, you know, we need to ask ourselves a question about tithing in general. Is tithing a New Testament concept? Well, any New Testament concept has to pass three uh, different standards, right? We have to see it first modeled in the Gospels, We need to see it practiced by the early church in the book of Acts and finally further explained in the epistles, right? Right. Yeah, so uh, we could ask ourselves that question. Tithing, and usually they'll point to Malachi about, you know, uh, bring the whole tithe into off your curse with a curse if you don't tithe and so on. What they don't understand is this. The context of Malachi referred to the tithe, the 10%, that the people of Israel would give to support the work of the temple and the priests and the Levites. It was a form of spiritual income tax. 
If you read through the book of Malachi, God has all kinds of interesting things to say to the people of Israel about the fact that they were falling uh, down on the job uh, as far as their uh, part in the covenant that God made with them. The Old Testament covenant is if you do these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If you don't do these things, then you're going to be cursed. So, you know, what happens sometimes with tithe teaching is that people will take that 10% mark and that passage in Malachi and say, if you want to be blessed by God, you have to give 10% of the gross, not the net. And if you give that to God, usually they will say something in effect of giving it to their ministry. Then God will bless you. Well, problem with that. Uh, you can give 10% to Christian causes, and you can give it grudgingly. You can give it with a bad attitude. And uh, you know whether God honors it or not, uh, is another question as far as eternal things are concerned. Uh, you know, in the book of Second Corinthians, chapter nine and verse six, this attitude that we have towards giving says this: "But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you having all sufficiency in all things." They have abundance for every good work. Now, notice 10% is not mentioned there. We are to give, according to this passage, as we purpose in our heart. Our giving should be purposeful. It should be systematic. If you don't do a budget, you should probably do a budget and factor into that budget a certain amount of giving you're going to do for God so that you can invest in things that are going to last forever. It could even be a dollar. Yeah. So, you know, it says, it goes on to say, uh, not grudgingly or of necessity. In other words, grudgingly means kind of rolling your eyes, like, oh boy, they're doing an offering again. You know, don't give if it's going to be a big, painful sacrifice for you. God loves a cheerful giver. The word there is the Greek word hilarion. It literally means someone that just really loves and digs giving. So what about people who give 10% and are blessed as a result of that financially? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is ratifying or uh, giving his thumbs up to prosperity. Team. Oh, they gave 10%, so now I'm obligated to be able to, to have to give to them X and such. What it, it means is, is that there's a scriptural principle that applies across the board. You don't even have to be a Christian to experience it. If you tend to give to others, you're going to be blessed. Uh, people are going to be grateful about that. And uh the chances are, uh, by having that kind of an attitude where it's not about get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can, uh, you're going to be really blessed in this world. Now, God reserves the right to bless us in a number of different ways, not just financially, but spiritually, uh, sometimes relationally. Uh, and uh, these things, I think, we need to keep into account in all of this. Sometimes we look at people that, say, teach false doctrine and it seems to be like working for them, and it, and it creates kind of a problem for us. You know, Dre, I would encourage you to read through Psalm 73, because in Psalm 73, Asaph went through exactly that same problem. He saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said they've got more than they want. Their eyes bulge with abundance, uh, you know, and here I am starving to death, you know, and uh, I was about to cash in my faith when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It doesn't mean God's blessing the wicked, as a matter of fact, the last part of Psalm 73 is uh, Asaph comes to his uh, senses when? 
when he looks at their end, yeah. when ultimately reading their prosperity in light of the day where it's going to come up short when they answer to how they achieved it for, before God. Yeah, and, and so, you know, the greatest riches is having a relationship with God. And the reason that we want to give is we want to share God's generous character. We want to love, not in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so is there anything wrong with giving 10%? No, I think giving 10% is a really good benchmark. If you're like me and you're kind of systematic about how you handle your finances and so on, I think it's a good thing to shoot for. If you can't give 10%, though, don't put yourself under some kind of beat-me-up works trip uh, where you say, well, God isn't going to bless me because I only gave 8% last week. You can give of your time, you can give of your talent, you can give of your treasure, and with all those sacrifices, God is well pleased. So it's not like we've got to deal with God, I've got to crack that 10% mark or I'm not going to be blessed. Because that person cracked that 10% mark, no wonder they're blessed. Uh, no, it's all about the heart. That's what God looks at. All right, A quick question I wanted to get to before we, we ended uh, that was sent along before airtime. I want to throw it out to you. Um, is hell really in the center of the earth? No. How do we know this? Well, the <laughs> associations because of some uh, Jewish traditions and so forth, but the term the grave or Sheol in Hebrew was associated with that abode of the dead, but the problem is hell and the abode of the dead aren't necessarily the same thing. It's used in a, not necessarily parable, but an illustration Jesus made between the rich man and Lazarus to be a holding place for those who are awaiting judgment, but note, uh, you don't await judgment to go back into the place where you're awaiting judgment. That's uh, basically how we'd handle that. So how do we uh, uh, reconcile that with uh, Ephesians 4 where it says that Jesus descended to the lowermost parts of the earth. Noting again the handling of that text the Sheol or the holding part place of the dead doesn't mean that the lowest parts of the earth was actually in the earth. It's using the same language. Okay. Alright. Well hopefully that, that clarifies that. Osman, uh, please email us that question. We'll get to it tomorrow and as well, Kurt, uh, we'd be happy to address those things with you. But until then, we'll see you on next time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.